and so we're ready to go, I reckon. Uh, y'all, y'all have heard me before, so you know you're going to get a little bit of redneck this morning. And, uh, you know, I just got to embrace that because that's who I am. Uh, some of y'all remember the last time I, I, I laughed with uh, Michael and uh, Judy when they are absent from Sunday school to go teach another uh, class somewhere because they're subs about getting called up to the bigs. You know, the... Uh, <laughs> the uh, substitute minor league player who threw an injury to somebody on the big team, the sponsoring team, gets called up all of a sudden. And that's kind of kind of how you feel when you're in this, in this position. Uh, I, don't, I don't do much in front of a live audience anymore. I, uh, I teach online, uh, and that's better than a sharp stick in the eye, I guess. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I kind of miss interacting interacting with a live audience. So, uh, when Stephen uh, asked me a week or so ago if I would I would preach today, uh, I began to think about what text I wanted to use. Um, I like to look at at passages with an eye toward subtlety. Um, I, I like to look for things that are often more implied than explicit. And I hope by doing this uh, that we'll learn together that no scripture is empty or vain. I stand in awe when I listen to Stephen do a revelation study where he can handle whole blocks of scripture at a time and and do it well. Uh, I, won't, I won't brag on him here like I brag on him other places. But I'm telling you, in my 36 years of ministry and my lifelong membership in a Baptist church, we have one of the finest pulpiteers in the area. I say all that to say that ain't me. I'm a, I'm a text guy. I like to waller. At my, my preaching professor got on me, Stephen, about using the word waller. I like to waller around in words and vocabulary, in grammar, in syntax, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, much to the very great chagrin, I think, sometimes of my Sunday school class, because that's what we do in there. Uh, you know, it's easy, it's easy to get into the forest and focus only on a tree. And I'll, I'll try not to do that today. Um, But I believe that God, through the folks he inspired to write the Scripture, makes sure that if we listen carefully, we'll hear something we need to hear, and we'll learn something perhaps to fill in some of the blanks in our lives and in our relationships with him and others. And just maybe he'll teach us something about how we should go about being the church which, uh, I don't know what you think about the church, but it is a community first. It is a community of people who are like-minded and centered around their believing that Jesus is the Christ. So today I want us to take a look at Philippians 1.1. I'll give you a minute to get there. Well, that's not really entirely accurate. We're going to use part of that verse well, kind of. We're going to look at the first seven words in that, in that text. So here's our text for the morning. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. That's it. 
Now, I don't know about you. I don't know when you do your devotionals, and if you don't, I hope you do. It's a good, good habit to get in. A lot of folks do theirs over breakfast. I actually do my Bible reading, pedaling a Nordic track recumbent bike in my exercise room. And, and so sometimes these little introductory things like this are, are the uh, biblical equivalent of the political concept of flyover country. We read them and, and we just, well, I, I've done that. I mean, they're there, so I've got to read them. Let's get on to the meat of the text. Well, uh, I think there's some meat here. Now, if, if you're, how many of y'all eat ribs? I don't. They're too messy for me. I once in a while again. But, you know, if you're going to get meat off a rib, you're going to have to learn to gnaw some bone. <laughs> and so we're going to try to get some meat off of this flyover country for most of us. Uh, if you know anything about a Greco-Roman letter, most of us have no real reason to know that, at least uh, I, I suspect... Uh, the good doctor here. I'm going to tease him all morning about that because it's just something that we do to each other. The good doctor here and Aaron Jones. Now, Aaron's not here. He's TDY somewhere, Washington State, going to OTS, his mom told me today. But Aaron actually suffered through my New Testament class and did quite well. And one of the things we study is all the the details of Greco-Roman letter writing. Well, in this this little section that we we read this morning is the introduction. Uh, we we say that till last. Love Tom, love Stephen, love somebody at the very end of the letter. They did it just backwards. They introduced who was writing, so you would know kind of a source of authority. You would kind of anticipate maybe some of the issues that were going to be addressed, uh, and so Paul uh, lets them know up front who it is, kind of. Now, you need to know that Paul doesn't do this just so his uh, readers will know who's sending the letter. Paul always has an agenda. He's always teaching. Now, probably some of y'all know that, there's that y'all again, that's okay, that's okay. It is the plural you, you know. It's in Scripture all over the place, it's just in Greek. Uh, and they don't have a contraction, so they missed something there. As many of y'all know, Philippians is purported to be a thank you note. And truth be told, in chapter 4, finally, Paul gets around to giving a kind of a muted thank you to this group of Christians who has supported him several times with financial help. But before he gets around to saying thank you, he uh, first deals with some issues that have cropped up in the church at Philippi. Uh, there are evidently a couple of ladies there. They're probably hosts of little cell groups that comprise the church at Philippi. And these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, are uh, in, in a little bit of a competition about, well, we, we used to say BMOC, big man on campus, but big person in the church is what they want to be. And uh, their competition for top position is creating division in the fellowship, division in the community of faith. 
Now, us Baptists, actually, it's we Baptists, we Baptists, we know all about this. We got a little bit of different terminology. We call it a split. And I tell you, they ain't anybody better at splitting than Baptists are. In fact, somebody has said Baptists multiply by dividing. (laughs) But you know what Paul knew? Paul understood the danger this posed. Among folks who claim that God's presence in their midst and in their fellowship was the source of unity, splits in the fellowship demonstrated that claim to be a lie. Splits nullified the testimony of the church in the community to whom they were tasked with showing the love of Christ. So Paul, okay, if you're 30 years old and younger, okay, this this question's for you. How many of y'all know who Barney Fife is? In the inimitable words of Barney Fife, Paul sets out in Philippians to nip it in the bud. Did you get what he said? Do you do you see what he did? Like I say, Paul doesn't waste words. He doesn't just throw out flyover stuff. What Paul does is very deliberate and very instructional, or it was to the Philippians, should have been. If you missed it, don't feel too bad. I don't think most folks get it. Too often we hear, but don't really listen. I saw a t-shirt the other day that said, my wife told me two things. One was that I need to listen better, and I forgot the other thing. I'm surprised Kelly hasn't already gotten me that t-shirt. What I want you to see is that Paul introduces both himself and his young protege, Timothy, as the authors of the letter. Further, Paul deliberately gives them both the same indistinguishable title because he calls them both slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, you might be saying to yourself, so what? Well, now, let me say to you what I often say to my students. What Stephen said to us a few times going through Revelation, and it's always critical when we're reading the Bible to remember who the audience was. And it was not us. We're actually, I mean, this is a letter, so we're actually reading somebody else's mail here. And we need to try to put ourselves in their position, in their culture, so that we can hear and and figure out what Paul's got going on. These folks are competing. You know, that's a nice word, isn't it, compete? We, We baptize that and bring it right on into the church. They're fighting. They're fighting among themselves for primary position in the fellowship. But what Paul is doing here is equating young Timothy, who really, let's be honest, is only his intern. 
But he's equating Timothy with himself. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Also, Paul is reminding his readers that both he and Timothy, though leaders in the Gentile Christian community, are still, still only slaves to the one who has the authority, the real authority, the only authority, the primary authority, and who alone is worthy of reverence. So let's slow down for just a minute. We're going to put the brakes on a little while. And let's think about Paul's strategy in doing what he does with both Timothy and with the Philippians. Let's see what he did and how he did it. And as we observe, let's think about who we are in the 21st century. Here we are in Taylor Ranch, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Let's see if there's some way to take this lesson that's more than two millennia old now. Well, approaching two millennia, right? Yeah. Uh, and see if we can bring it, bring it into our time. Let's think for a minute about who Timothy was. Timothy was a young man Paul met on one of his missionary trips who was himself from Asia. His mother and his grandmother were, were Jewesses, Jews. But his daddy was a Greek. That is, a Gentile. He was somebody, as far as we know, who had no background in Scripture, maybe not even a believer. We, we don't know a lot more about him except that he was Greek. So when Paul came along preaching about Jesus as the fulfillment of everything proclaimed in the Scriptures to which Timothy and his ma and his grandma had and, and passed along to him, he responded evidently wholeheartedly. Now, Paul knew talent. He saw potential in this young man. He had learned about talent scouting from Barnabas. You remember the story about how Paul got started in ministry? He had, he had been called in a dramatic way on the road to Damascus, but the people in the churches were so mortified that this guy who had set out to enslave them and imprison them all of a sudden was making claims about, oh, well, now I'm one of you, that nobody would have anything to do with him. Barnabas traveled from Antioch all the way over to where Paul lived in Tarsus because Barnabas understood the potential that God had given this man, Paul. That spoke to Paul. He understood the need to always be on the hunt for new talent. I say talent, that's kind of a crass way to do that. But for people who could rightly handle the word, we'll say, who had some level of understanding, who had a predisposition toward teaching, and somehow he saw this in Timothy. So following Barnabas' model, Paul took Timothy under his wing and carefully tutored him and cultivated him to perpetuate 
everything that Paul taught him, both in word and in deed. So let's watch how Paul does this in these few words. First of all, by including Timothy in the letter's introduction, Paul emphasizes to his young intern that he's really an important part of what's happening on these missionary journeys. Well, it's not likely that Timothy really contributed much to the substance of this letter. Maybe he had to remind Paul about some names. You know, I'm real bad about that myself. But Paul wanted Timothy to know that what he did do gave Paul the time and the space to write and to teach and to correct the friends in Philippi. Paul, as we learn later from 2 Timothy, kind of looked for teachable moments, you know, where all of us parents are kind of aware of that. I'm, I'm maybe more aware of that now that I'm a, I'm a pop, I'm a grandpa, grandfather. And, and so I, I, watch, uh, I, I watch when Nora's around or Arthur is around, and, and I look for a moment when their natural inquisitiveness allows me to fill in a blank or two. That's what Paul did. He cultivates this young man and gives him the opportunity under Paul's very careful guidance to practice missionary and pastoral crafts that Timothy would need to continue the work to which God had called him. And if we take the Timothy letter seriously, and I do, to continue to look for others who had that same potential and cultivate that skill set in them as well. Timothy's seminary training, and I say that with my tongue planted firmly in my cheek, his seminary training took place in the classroom of real life and practical experience. Because you see, that's what discipleship really is about. You don't have to have advanced degrees to be a teacher and a discipler in the work of the kingdom. But you do have to have an awareness that it's your responsibility to find and to mentor those who are watching how you practice ministry. Now, we all know folks who love to exercise what I call the authority of association. Isn't that a a nice-sounding way to say what I'm about to say, which ain't very nice? You see, the authority of association is a form of bullying. We probably all have somebody we've come across skilled in just letting you know how much power they wield, not because they're anybody, but because they know folks. They'll say things like, my husband is so-and-so, my wife is so-and-so, I work for so-and-so. Do you know who my parents are? They have no direct authority or power, but boy, just quicker than a New York minute, they'll glom onto the power of somebody else with whom they are associated. Now, once again, in these few brief words of introduction, 
Paul does another Barney Fife here and nips it in the bud. While Paul emphasized the importance of Timothy's role in their work together, he also says that they are slaves. Slaves. Now, if you've got a, a modern translation, it's probably probably servants. That's nice. Servants can be hired folk. You know, Kelly and I watch a lot of British television, and we watch Downton Abbey with all the upstairs and downstairs servants, and they're all hired folk. They can come and go. In fact, they did in the series come, and they came and went as it suited them. That's not the word Paul uses here. He does not use the word diakonoi, servants. He uses the word douloi, slaves. And that's important. In the first place, it's pretty humbling, actually. Let me say that I suspect Paul intended it to be. Remember who the audience is. He's dealing with some folks who have forgotten that they also are called to be slaves of Christ Jesus. This is called the wisdom of the cross. Uh, no, it's not. This is my term for what it's called. Uh, wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of the cross is the inversion of worldly values. I would argue that it's probably the second or third step in what Paul conceives as the trajectory of salvation in his teaching. It's not about bossing folks around to get what you want. You remember how many times in the synoptic gospels Jesus had to turn around to the disciples and say, okay, guys, what's the buzz? What's up? And they're, they're walking along behind Jesus, haggling with one another about who's going to be the greatest in the coming kingdom because they have no idea what Jesus is up to. Jesus kind of puts the kibosh. He does his imitation of Barney Fife 2,000 years before Barney was ever thought of. And he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his very life as a ransom for everybody else. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew phrase that pops up again and again. It's Eved Yahweh. Eved Yahweh. Servant of the Lord is the way it's translated in most of our translations. The concept of being the servant of the Lord is more than just pious-sounding words. It's about sacrificial service to God through sacrificial service to those whom God brings into our sphere of influence. Timothy's going to be God's man in more than just words. He needs to be prepared... Hear what I'm about to say, to hoe a tough row. That, that's kind of, is that too rednecky, Jim? Okay. Uh, a lot of folks don't even know what a hoe is anymore, much less to hoe a row. But down where I come from in the, in the summertime, 
uh, when the cotton's up or in Kentucky when the backer's up. You got to go in there and hoe out the weeds, anything that would draw off nutrients from the plant that is the primary focus of that field. And some of those old, boy, some of those old weeds, they got deep roots and they don't come out easy. So if you got a row that's got those kind of weeds on it, you're going to do some work. Paul wants Timothy to know, and perhaps Euodia in Syntyche, that being a servant of the Lord is tough work. Paul models this idea for Timothy and for the Philippians gently, very gently. He doesn't go in with guns blazing, you know, calling them out and talking them down, not none of that kind of stuff. He loves these folks. They're his friends. In fact, he constantly in his letters use what biblical scholars call, you ready for this? This is a good one, fictive kinship language. Isn't that great? Fictive kinship. I'd see, see Nikki down there, mm, I'm chew on that one a while. They weren't any of them, too many of them, kin to one another, but in Christ, they become family. Now, I need, in the interest of fairness, to tell you that there's another dimension to being a slave of Christ Jesus, which most of us are unaware of because we're temporally and culturally separated so far from the first century. You know, there were, and, and, and I got to say, first century slavery was often very, very different from what we saw in our own country. Some slaves in the first century actually wielded a pretty fair amount of power. As long as, and here's the caveat, as long as they were speaking an important and an accurate message from their masters, they might actually command the interest and attention of folks who might otherwise just kind of push them aside because they're after all, they're only slaves. Okay, 25 and under again. How many of y'all recognize the name Rod Serling? Oh, God, we got, we got some, some folks in there. So I saw some hands go up that I know aren't 25 and under, so I'm just saying. <laughs> Twilight Zone. Rod Serling opened every show with a stern look on his face and a cigarette between his fingers, and he said, Imagine, if you will. Imagine, if you will, you're a first century craftsperson with a thriving business and a line of wealthy customers out your front door. A person whose manner of dress marks him off as a slave wanders in and hollers, Hey, bud! How about some help over here? How do you think that guy's going to be responded to? <laughs> Take a hike. You don't have much and I got paying customers. Now let's imagine a different scene in which you're still the thriving craftsman in a successful business 
And another person wanders in at the back of the line dressed in the apparel of the emperor's staff. He's still a slave. He's not trying to push his own agenda. But he's come because the guy who runs everything in the then known world has sent him to do some business for him because he's got better things to do than go to the market. And as long as he's using his credentials properly, instead of asserting his own authority of association like we saw a while ago, he will likely gain a hearing and move to the front of the line, not because of who he is, but because he represents his master's interests faithfully, accurately. This is another subtlety that Paul modeled for Timothy as a slave of Christ. If you'll remember where Paul told readers to shed old habits and things that kind of reflected a kind of a fallen nature, put them off and then put on something else, put on Christ. In other words, make sure that you demonstrate through your lifestyle the character and the priorities of the master. Being a slave of Christ is not about elbowing your way to the front of the line bossing folks around. It's about being Christ's representative by accurately embodying his character and gaining a hearing for an accurate presentation of the message. That's hard for me. Man, I'm a type A personality and I can go I can go strong commander real quick. Now I gotta tell you this has been a pretty inductive message and, and you know I'm you, you know what they does when a preacher does this means he's got a watch not really that he's paying too much attention but but there's a lot more in this passage maybe sometime we'll we'll come back to it see I, I didn't even get through seven words but but this is a pretty inductive message Baptists are really not very comfortable with inductive preaching I hadn't, I hadn't told y'all a bunch of stuff that you need to do this and you need to do that you know, I, I think you're probably smart enough to figure that out for yourself. I think Paul thought that the Philippians could read between the lines too and come to the right conclusions. So I hadn't spent a great deal of time today told him, telling you how to apply what we've learned. But let's close with a few things to consider. Let's talk about talent scouting. How often do we engage in talent scouting like Paul and Barnabas did? You know, there are some churches that are filled with old people. No offense, I are one. You know, I, we used to have to preach with a stand mic, so we're kind of limited in what we can do, but... Uh, not not that I could ever do backflips, but if I were capable of it either by inclination or age to do that, I could do it with one of these things on. 
but they're filled with old people because they won't give young people a place or a time or devote themselves to teaching young people how to do the work of ministry in the context of the community of faith. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I this morning stood outside with Marshall and Jarrett while they were doing the greeting. Uh, that, that's, a, that's an opening place. Uh, I don't know how, my, how old Michael is. I don't want to know. I don't need to know. I don't practice age discrimination. If I did, I'd discriminate against myself. But it's exciting for me that a, can I say young man, Michael, is that okay? Okay. If you're not, I'll just, we'll just be one of those social lies. Uh, It's exciting for me to see him stepping into a teaching role. Same with Aaron, same for a, a few of the others around our fellowship. You know why? Because that's how they learn. I'm, I'm probably not much longer on the green side of the sod. I mean, I just got to say that. I'll be 65 this year, and, you know, that's just the way it goes. What's going to happen, even if I've been the greatest preacher and teacher on the face of the earth, and I'm not, but even if I were, and I've not prepared anybody to take my place when the inevitable happens, how much have I accomplished? Folks, we are blessed to have a church full of young folks. From the little bitty ones like my grandkids to the Aaron's and the Michaels and some of the others. We have to be cognizant of the resources that God has placed in our trust, us old geezers. I, I have embraced geezerhood, Jim. No, no sense lying about it. I've embraced it. You know, I'm a, I'm a rock person. Dennis and I talk, Marsha, about tumbling rocks and stuff. You, you'd be surprised what an ugly rock can look like when you put it through a tumbling process. Uh, some, some around here, where's his faith here this morning? Judy's got one couple of pieces of my jewelry. Uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a gemologist. I'm not a jeweler. I just find pretty stuff and wrap it up and put it on a string. But it's pretty amazing how beautiful some of that stuff is when, and you know where I find a lot of it? Laying in my yard in the gravel that we have instead of grass. But you know what? I've developed an eye. Now, not every rock I tumble comes out to be a work of art. You know, there are a lot of them that wind up in Kelly's plants, which she decorates, you know, in her potted plants, putting a rock here and a rock there. Some of them wind up there. But once in a while, you find one that just grabs you by the eye and screams to decorate somebody's neck. 
how often do we recognize the importance of every contribution of every person in the fellowship? You know, some preachers are, can, can I say this? Preachers are the world's worst about this. We're, we're the person right up front. We've got to preach the word. But you know what? It'd be a lot harder for Stephen to do that every week if he had to greet people coming in and make the coffee and sweep the floor and do all of that kind of stuff. As it is, we've got people who will do that to create time and opportunity for him to study and pray. And, and let me tell you something. Writing sermons is no easy task for those of you who have ever done it. It is so much more than just public speaking that you can't appreciate it until you've done it. A lot of people who make a great contribution to this fellowship, we will never know names of. But what they do makes it possible for the whole body to function properly. How intentional are we in training our juniors? I don't, I don't mean that to sound condescending, but if you've been on the trail for a long, long time, you've got people coming along behind you. Some of them are young in age and some of them are young in faith, and they need to be taught. That doesn't happen accidentally. It doesn't happen incidentally. It happens when we open our eyes and allow God to reach out to folks who are just right there. You know? We don't have to pray, oh God, oh, give me an opportunity. Let me tell you something. We're surrounded by opportunity, we're surrounded by people who have potential. How intentional are we? How deliberate are we? There are words in our lifestyles to do what Paul did. It's a huge investment, isn't it? Now, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't plumbed the depths, as they say. I hated plumbing. I was a pipe fitter, and I was a pipe fitter because I hated plumbing. We got, the, we got the work that plumbers just wish they got, and we didn't have to do the work we knew they had to. I hadn't started to plumb the depths of this passage. But there are some of these issues are raised just in these few seven words that we often just read by trying to get to the meat of the text. Let me challenge you this week. Slow down. Read and listen carefully. And maybe we'll all just discover that there's more here than we ever thought before. Well, Stephen.